Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to take a look at a very interesting topic that's becoming very, very important, even more important than it was five or six years ago, and that is cybercrime, cyber warfare. My guest today is an expert on these two items. My guest today is Dr. John Arquilla. Dr. Arquilla is a distinguished professor emeritus of defense analysis at the United States Naval Postgraduate School. His interests extend from the history of irregular warfare to the strategic implications of the information revolution. His latest book is titled, It's Creed, The New Challenge of Cyber Warfare. Dr. Arquilla, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thanks so much, Bill. Good to be with you. I appreciate you being with me. I'm curious, you used the term Blitzkrieg, B-I-T-S, instead of Blitzkrieg. Is there, is there a takeoff on that? Uh, is there something we need to know about that, type, that first word? Well, hopefully the word association is with the original Blitzkrieg, which was the outstanding military innovation a century ago. And my hope is that we'll come to understand that Blitzkrieg is part of the new era of military innovation. As to the word bits, it's my belief that uh, bombs and bullets are going to be very much guided by bits and bytes in the coming years. And so that's why bits. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I think you're absolutely right. How, uh, just to lay out a few basic definitions, how would you, in a couple of words, define cyber warfare versus cybersecurity? Cyber war is a really complex uh, concept that includes both the way we will use cyber and other informational means in the way we uh, fight our battles on land, at sea, and in the aerospace and environment. It also includes things like political warfare, such as occurred during the uh, American presidential election in 2016. And it includes things uh, like a specific, what, what I call strategic crime, not just uh, ransomware for its own sake, but it, its use in helping, uh, for example, in North Korea's case, they do a lot of ransomware to help with their proliferation program. So that's cyber warfare with those various uh, different aspects. Cybersecurity is about how we protect our systems. It's more nearly uh, really located in the idea of protecting systems against viruses and other malicious kinds of software. To the 2016 election, let's focus back on that, go back about four and a half years ago. Are we any closer today to quantify how many illegalities took place or how many interferences took place and who was responsible for them primarily? I know we've had a heated debate over it for the past four and a half years, but do we know any more today than we did say at that time when some of the Russian operatives were interfering or meddling in our election? 
Well, Bill, a lot of forensics have been done about uh, interference in the 2016 election, and many measures were taken, so a lot less of it occurred in the 2020 election. Uh, but basically, we're talking about uh, Russian interference extending to about two or three percent of the actual postings, initial postings by individuals. Uh, most of what was then done was an amplification of their messages uh, by, as you note, uh, bots, uh, these uh, artificially intelligence, uh, what we call spiders in the cyber business and, and other kinds of uh, robot networks that were able to amplify the image. And then, of course, a lot of people picked up on uh, the messages and repeated them. I think the, the real lesson here is that open societies are going to remain quite vulnerable to cyberspace-based political warfare, not just the United States, but there are a lot of fragile democracies around the world. And what we've seen is a number of these actors, some Russian and some others, are beginning to interfere in these elections in uh, fragile democracies in West Africa and East Asia and, and elsewhere. So this is a very significant threat and we should take the opportunity of the events of 2016 uh, to encourage others to develop the kinds of defenses we have, to encourage social media companies to become more circumspect as well. And I, and I think we're beginning to get a handle on the problem. Are the social media companies responding appropriately? Do you think they're taking this seriously or are they still looking at the bottom line thinking they can make money off of this if they just kind of close their eyes and let it happen? I think they've become a lot more circumspect in, in recent years. And, and of course, you want to be careful to thread the needle between becoming more secure and stifling free speech, which is a concern to some extent uh, on the right uh, today, that there is this uh, stifling of, of speech, even because it is apparently uh, incorrect or untrue. We have to be very, very careful about getting to a point of censorship. But at the same time, we don't want to feed the machine of cyber-based political warfare. So the companies are trying, they're working closely with government uh, now and trying to find that equilibrium. But as I say, I, I think the United States was just the first example of a full-fledged effort of this sort. And there are many other countries who aren't nearly as well prepared as we are to deal with the problem. And we need to help them uh, fight this kind of political warfare. Yes, we certainly do. Now you mentioned the 2016 election. Uh, we saw not too long ago, a few months ago, the there there was, a, well, it was a, I guess, cyber terrorism is what it was when they demanded a ransom to release the computer arrangements. Was it a colonial petroleum? Yeah. Does that sound right? I may be wrong on that. But well, the, they distributed oil to a large number of states on the eastern seaboard. Uh, have we learned much from that as to, and that, and as well as the 2016 elections, as to other things we need to do? Well, ransomware is a growing problem. It has been, as I note in my book, it's been on the rise for the past several years and it's growing exponentially because it's pretty easy to do. And uh, in fact, people who aren't terribly sophisticated in cyber means can actually download the software and get instructions as they go from a small group of master hackers who, who uh, give them a, a lot of, uh, if you will, tech support for this kind of crime. Now, why is it such a big problem? Well, we saw in Colonial Pipeline how they were able to cause a mass disruption along the East Coast in terms of what eventually were you know, gas supplies at, at gas stations. The problem there is that that pipeline is old technology, but it's connected to the web and the net. 
and the administrative software running that old pipeline was many decades old and fairly easy to tie up. So one of the problems we have, and I hope in our infrastructure bills that are going through Congress right now, someone begins to realize that when we talk about broadband, the story here isn't simply about taking it to rural places, but to protecting it better, especially those connections between older infrastructure uh, and the web and, and the net. And in our country, a very large amount of our infrastructure is many decades old, and yet it's completely wired to the most advanced connectivity. This makes it vulnerable. And, and so a lot of re-engineering is important. And when we talk about uh, building back better, better needs to be uh, paying a special attention to issues of cybersecurity for older infrastructure. It has to be, we really have to protect it. If we don't, we're opening ourselves up to all types of interference. And are we really in somewhat of a, not, you and I remember the Cold War between the US and the USSR. Uh, we're not into a Cold War right now, I guess, with China or with Russia, or maybe even Iran. I hear that Iran has mm -hmm. fairly good capabilities in this area. Are we in kind of a cool war or maybe a frigid moment as far as trying to figure out what they're doing, they're figuring out what we're doing and maybe setting up our defenses and counter defenses? Absolutely, Bill. That's the title of the first chapter of my book is Cool War Rising. Uh, it's not a cold war. It's cool in part because you never quite know who's behind what's going on, right? You have a group of hackers that maybe are housed in Russia, but the Russian government denies involvement. Uh, we now think the Chinese are working with some criminal entities, perhaps the Asian triads. Uh, we know that North Korea has hacker groups. They grow a lot of their own, but they also are dealing with uh, others on the outside. Uh, Iran has a tremendously active hacker community. And so, uh, as I like to put it, the Cold War had a dynamic that was mostly about an arms race to build nuclear weapons. And the Cool War era is one in which we see an organizational race to build ties with hacker networks. And the United States is a little bit behind in that organizational race because we don't generally reach out to and cultivate relationships with, with hacker networks. In fact, we prefer to incarcerate the, uh, the, the hackers in our country, whereas in Russia and in China and other places, uh, hackers are brought inside or sponsored or allowed to operate in those countries as havens and pretty much given a free hand. And some companies, private companies actually hired hackers to help them protect their, their software, software and their hardware capabilities. And they brought them in and put them on the payroll. There is some effort to use what are called uh, white hat hackers to help companies. And, and of course, in the American defense establishment, uh, there are some people uh, who uh, you know, don't have uh, regulation haircuts and do have uh, body art and uh, piercings. And so there's a little bit of that going on, but by and large, the United States has taken a fairly hostile view toward uh, hacking. I think of the example of Aaron Schwartz uh, master hacker, uh, one of the founders of uh, Reddit, who uh, simply wanted to put academic articles out on a website available to everyone. So he hacked into MIT's database, got caught, and uh, well, he was going to be put on trial and threatened with 25 years of incarceration uh, if he didn't uh, plead to a lesser charge. Uh, he went home and killed himself in, instead. And, and so we have to be, I think, careful about not alienating the digital natives who are going to be an important part of our future cybersecurity. We certainly do, yes. 
we're going to need all of the assistance that we can get. There's no doubt about it. When you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program, the opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps a podcast, or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you just have a computer, you like our programs, and you want to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at the whole issue of cybersecurity and what we can do to protect ourselves. My guest is expert on this topic. Dr. John Arquilla is a distinguished professor emeritus of defense analysis at the United States Naval Postgraduate School. His most recent book is Bitscreed, The New Challenge of Cyber Warfare. Dr. Arquilla, we're talking about what we can do. And when I, when I think about nations who have a lot of common goals when it comes to this, trying to get a control of it, and also maybe to have some ground rules, have some outer limits that you don't want to cross, because if you do, you know, who knows what will happen after that. Nations get nervous, and they do strange things, and it can be a very dangerous situation. But I was thinking one group that has played a key role in helping to bring countries together has been the United Nations. If you look at many of the UN agencies, they brought the postal authorities together to create the postal union to help move mail safely around the world, shipping lines of the world together to move ships on the high seas to do it safely, uh, civil aviation organization, the UN, to move aircraft in international airspace. I, I remember not long ago, I guess about two years ago, I interviewed a private sector cyber security expert at the UN who was up there for a, a conference at the United Nations. What role has the UN played or what role could or should the UN play in helping to bring the countries of the world together to help define the parameters, to set up the guardrails, to make sure that we don't really blunder into a very dangerous situation. The UN has been involved for 25 years in efforts to achieve a kind of rules of the road for, for cyberspace. And this began almost immediately after the first meeting between American and Russian uh, cyber experts. Uh, I was part of the American team uh, in those discussions and both we and the Russians agreed that some sort of rules of the road had to be uh, crafted, should be brought before the United Nations. And oddly enough, as I note in uh, my book, uh, it was the United States that balked at the idea of imposing any controls. As, as I was told when I went back to the Pentagon to report on this meeting, uh, well, the Russians only want to have some kind of limits on what you can do in cyberspace because we're so far ahead of them. To which my response was, well, we won't stay ahead. Uh, in any event, uh, the uh, Russians and a number of other nations went forward in the, in the United Nations in, uh, let's see, it was, General Resolution 53-70, uh, and uh, the United States uh, blocked it and continued to block uh, any notion of cyber arms control really for quite some time, both under a Democratic and Republican presidents. Uh, but in 2015, President Obama did meet with President Xi of China and raised the issue of a kind of behavior-based arms control in cyberspace. And President Xi agreed to further talks. And I understand those are going on quietly. And President Biden and President Putin 
have also recently discussed this when, when they met. So I think there's some hope for movement in this area. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's been the downfall of many a leader, especially military leaders. You say, well, we're so far ahead, we don't have to worry about it, but how long will we be ahead? One never knows. And it's amazing how quickly this technology, as you know, is moving from country to country and can be adapted very quickly. But I was curious, in your book, uh, before we run out of time, you mentioned AI Jane. Is that artificial intelligence Jane? And if that is, who is she and why is she important? AI Jane and GI Joe are going to be the future of military affairs. Think about it this way. The, the aircraft completely transformed war on land and at sea in the 20th century. Artificial intelligence is going to transform warfare in the field, at sea, in the aerospace environment throughout the 21st century. Uh, as I note in, in the book, we have some remarkable examples. We had a, a, a robot pilot go up against the best of the top gun pilots in five dogfights using the same aircraft, each one. And the uh, robot won five to nothing. And in fact, the human pilot didn't put a single hit on the, on the robot. In another exercise at Fort Benning in December of 2019, AI was used to provide all the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance for a force that was one-third the size of an attacking force. And it absolutely destroyed the attackers because it was able to use the information quickly. Too often, we think of cyber war simply about attacking information systems. But AI is going to help us manage the information in our systems more quickly and allow us to operate more swiftly. Lately, we've been hearing some of our in my opinion, not very well informed members of Congress and a few other people in Washington ramble on about how maybe we should think about going to war with China, which wars do not pan out as we see. We, we can go back, take every war we've been in for the last 75 years and then panned out the way, quite the way we thought it would. But some of the military specialists have said that China is really very advanced in this area and some have even predicted that if we did, for some reason, go to war, that they could knock out our eyes and our ears. They could knock out our telecommunication system. We'd have jets flying out over the Pacific, ships wandering around. They wouldn't know where they were going. Is that actually a possibility? I don't know how far ahead they are, or if they could even do it, but it certainly doesn't seem like it's in the realm of an impossibility. I think these concerns reflect the fact that information systems are going to be primary targets in the next shooting war. And we're not just going to be shooting bombs and, and bullets, it's, we're also going to be hurling bits and bytes of information. And uh, yes, I think the disruption of these systems can have a profound effect on our combat capabilities. And, uh, you know, back in the era of Blitzkrieg, one of the things they tried to do with the uh, Stuka dive bombers was to knock out communication so the opponent couldn't react quickly enough. The same thing is going to be done in the next war with uh, hacking of information systems. And, and I think it's going to be uh, profoundly powerful in its effects on the future of warfare. What do you think, uh, as we're talking about this, as you look into your crystal ball, or you've studied this for many years, decades perhaps, what, what is the worst case scenario that you can think of that could possibly arrive that, that we either wanted to happen or we bungled into it by accident, which seems to be the way we, we do a lot of our, our defensive actions, but what, what is the worst case scenario? 
I think the most difficult challenge we would face uh, would be if some kind of fighting occurred again on the Korean Peninsula. Let, let's assume that the proliferation crisis turns into a conflict and uh, the North Koreans decide uh, not to invade all of the South, but just to drive uh, South um, 50 or 75 kilometers, surround Seoul, surround the American forces in the Chorwon Valley. Uh, threaten to escalate with a nuclear weapon uh, if uh, we decide to try to roll them back. And at the very start of all this, uh, they begin by frying all of the information systems uh, with uh, electromagnetic pulse, which can be detonated either with a high altitude uh, nuclear burst or by other means that I, I'm not really allowed to speak about. But uh, losing our information system from the start would allow this physical campaign to be undertaken quite, quite easily uh, over there. And, and it seems to me that uh, this would be uh, profoundly destabilizing uh, in, in the world to our relations with uh, uh, China. Remember, we got into war with China in the first Korean War as, as well. And, and so I think we need to be paying very, very close attention uh, to this, to hardening our information systems. Uh, and, and of course, the diplomacy involved here is very, very important. But we also have to realize that North Korea is a first-rate cyber power, and we have to think very, very closely about how to counter that element of any offensive that they might take. I'm glad you mentioned that because I mentioned Iran a minute ago, but you're right. The North Koreans, you wouldn't think they would be, but they certainly are very advanced. Uh, what, what role are other powers, I mean, not real major powers, but minor powers, such as Israel or countries like that, uh, perhaps India may be advanced in this, I don't know, but what role could they play in all of this? I think in terms of uh, advances in information systems and cyber warfare capabilities, uh, certainly the Israelis are absolutely uh, top notch. I'm glad you raised uh, India as, as a topic. Uh, we had an exercise uh, with them, an uh, Air Force to Air Force exercise uh, some years ago. And the Indians, it turned out, uh, did very, very well because they made better use of their information systems and they were able to outmaneuver uh, us pretty well in, in that exercise. So much so that, in fact, they continued the exercise but then blended the teams so that there were both American and Indian pilots on, on each team. So India is very, very sharp in, in this area. Uh, both France and Britain are moving ahead as, uh, as well skillfully. But let me just put it out there. Uh, the Russians are absolutely uh, superb. They run an exercise uh, pretty, fairly routinely called Zapad West, where the adversary is. And in these war games, they reflect an absolutely sophisticated use of uh, information disruptive cyber capabilities. And, and so in this cool war emerging, uh, we have to watch very carefully and learn from others. There are things we can learn from the Russians and the Indians. And uh, just as a century ago, different countries, the United States didn't really even have armored divisions until we saw the German panzer divisions. Then we built armored divisions of our own and they were actually even better than the panzer divisions. Exactly. <laughs> well, we got to be on the cutting edge and have to be in the forefront on this. Uh, so often we've seen movies that show how the Russians could knock out the entire electrical system in New York or Chicago, or we knocked it out in Moscow. Is that actually, is that possible to do at this juncture? Can you do that to each other? 
I'd say the ability to knock out the power is restricted to parts of the country. Uh, and, and to some extent, this is an artifact of deregulation. When deregulation occurred some decades ago, we ended up with a couple thousand power providing companies. And we have a lot of automated system, what are called SCADA systems that automatically, system control and data acquisition systems that automatically share power when someone else needs a, a great deal more, it gets it from the system. Or when you have slack capacity, it's loaned out to, to others. All that's done in an automated way. And that what that means is the interconnectivity. If any of those a couple thousand companies is penetrated uh, by a hacker, it allows the hacker to get in and disrupt a, a significant part of the of the system. So yeah, we and again, a lot of that infrastructure is older here in California, where I am. Uh, Pacific Gas and Electric has a lot of old infrastructure that's involved with the fires that are going on, but that old infrastructure also makes it very vulnerable to these hacks. So again, when we do our infrastructure bills and hopefully build back better, one of the things we have to think about is not just the efficiencies of these automatic sharing software, uh, really uh, tools that we're using, uh, but we also have to think about how to minimize the vulnerabilities that come with that kind of automation. Well, in our last 30 seconds, do you have a message? Is there something that we need to think about doing? I know we need to learn more about this, obviously, but is there a, a parting message that we need to consider when it comes to this? Because this is a major, major challenge. For all the talk about cyber warfare, there's also the possibility of cyber peace. Now, we saw this happen with weapons of mass destruction from nuclear weapons to the, the behavioral basis of chemical and biological weapons conventions. We can make agreements. We can set the guardrails and the rules of the road in cyberspace. And I think this is an urgent need, and it creates this possibility, not just of cyber war, but cyber peace. That is a perfect way to close it. And as uh, Winston Churchill said, it's better to jaw-jaw than war-war. And it, that makes a case too for the United Nations, the importance of the UN and for the countries of the world to come together because if this thing starts and gets out of control, we will all suffer without a doubt. But Dr. John Arquilla, I wanna thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Bill. My pleasure. I am Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.